Voice of Glittering Delights. And here, your host, Dandre Leyland. Spider-Man has always had it pretty good in animation. 1967, Gantrey Lawrence licensed the character from Marvel Comics and created a cartoon series that, whilst quite limited, was moderately faithful to the comics of the times. Peter Parker was a young man, not quite high school, but not far out, but he had the looks of the early Steve Ditko-drawn comic strips, and some of the episodes, like Were Crawls the Lizard, The Menace of Mysterio, Captured by J. Jonah Jameson and Never Step on a Scorpion, were pretty faithful adaptations of comics of the same titles. Paul Soules, who voiced the character, is still the go-to voice for many people when imagining what Spider-Man sounds like, and the supporting characters, whilst nowhere near as diverse or as interesting as the comics, were well realised, with J. Jonah Jameson being a standout. The greatest contribution the show made to popular culture in general, though, was its irresistibly catchy theme song by Paul Francis Webster and Bob Harris. After Gantrey Lawrence went bust, production on the series was taken over by Ralph Bakshi, and while psychedelic and fun in their own way, they're not as representative of the comics, and therefore I don't find them as good. Next, things got a tad confusing. In 1981, two different animated series starring Spider-Man were made for US TV, although, as usual for British screenings of imported shows, our transmissions differed wildly. Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends debuted on BBC One on 27th of October 1983, and to celebrate, Marvel UK changed the name of the long-running Spider-Man weekly comic to publicise the show. They published the one and only issue of Amazing Friends that Marvel US printed, an adaptation of the first episode, Revenge of the Green Goblin, and then floundered as to which of Spidey's Amazing Friends to feature on the cover every week. My memory is that that was also the first episode aired by the BBC. However, according to the BBC's Genome Project, the first episode they aired was Sunfire, the fourth US episode, which shows how reliable my memory is. The series saw Spidey team up with Firestar and Iceman, who were college students and roommates. The original lineup of Spider-Man, Iceman and the Human Torch was nixed when the FF were licensed by a rival animation house to produce a Fantastic Four animation series. Firestar was an original creation for the show who later made it into the comics. Spider-Man and his amazing friends must have been a decent ratings winner for the BBC as it aired on the channel until the late 1980s and was even granted the dubious honour of being broadcast on Saturday morning flagship magazine show Saturday Superstore. But Andrew, I can hear you both saying to your listening device of choice, what was the confusion you alluded to earlier? Well, lovely listener, at the same time Amazing Friends made its debut, another animated show, simply titled Spider-Man, appeared. It featured the same music and sound effects as Amazing Friends, but a different voice actor, Ted Schwartz, replacing Dan Gevilsen. In the UK, the series aired straight after Amazing Friends finished, with no gaps. Suddenly, the Amazing Friends had just disappeared, and Spidey's voice changed. I haven't seen this latter series since it originally aired, but I watched a few episodes of Amazing Friends for purposes of research for this show, and was entertained by them. Like watching cartoons is considered research now. Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends isn't a lost gem or anything, but the characters are pretty similar to the comics, albeit with a super-secret high-tech hidden dem that one has to wonder how three college students can afford. There's also an irritating anthropomorphised dog called Ms. Lion who saves the day on more than one occasion. 1994 saw the debut of one of the fondest remembered of the Spider-Man cartoons. Running for five seasons and featuring Christopher Daniel Barnes as Peter Parker Spider-Man, this show was Marvel's answer to the hugely successful Batman the Animated series. Whilst the show never achieves the lofty heights of that show, it works on its own merits, that of a melodramatic soap opera. Over the course of its run, the series adapted many of the stories and characters of the more recent comics into its narrative, with appearance by Venom, the Black Cat, the Beyonder, and loose adaptations of the Black Costume Saga, Secret Wars, and the marriage of Mary Jane Watson and Peter Parker. Its influence on Spider-Man is quite profound, with Spider-Man 3's Venom story following this cartoon, rather than the comic storyline, and for a lot of people this was the entry point into the character. The less said about the next series, Spider-Man Unlimited, the better. But MTV's completely CG-created show, Spider-Man, boasted Neil Patrick Harris as Spidey and is a lot better than many gave it credit for, although nowadays it looks like a video game cutscene. However, the reason for this episode is the next cartoon, the quite sublime, the spectacular Spider-Man. Whilst the theme isn't quite as catchy as the 60s original, it's still the best Spider-Man theme since then. So here it is. 
an aside, when this show aired in the UK, I never saw it in its entirety or in any order, so this is the first time I've watched it properly. I found the Season 1 DVD set in Asda for really quite cheap and couldn't resist picking it up. This song was a favourite of my young daughter who used to sing it loudly, although as a smaller child she couldn't say spectacular, it coming out spectaclear, which is what we all still call the show today, Spectacular Spider-Man. cartoon this series attempts to do for Spider-Man what Batman the animated series did for that character, namely streamline the timeline and introduce classic elements before they occurred in the comics, but in an organic way so as to make them part of Peter Parker's tapestry from the get-go. Greg Wiseman, who developed the show, planned the series to run for five years, with each season scheduled to take place over a semester of Peter's school year, and the series starts in Peter's junior year at Midtown High. The first and most obvious of the changes Wiseman introduces is that Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborne, characters Peter won't meet in the comics until he starts college, are front and centre from the beginning and established as being Peter's friends. Gwen is also recast as a science student, similar to Peter, something that would be echoed in Mark Webb's Amazing Spider-Man movies, and Harry is just as much a social outcast as Peter. On the one hand, giving Peter some contemporaries adds to his status, his friends with the geeks and the freaks. On the other, it does take away from the Lee Ditko stories where Peter had no friends at all. Still, Flash Thompson and Liz Allen from the original comics and Sally Avril from the Untold Tales of Spider-Man series, as well as Kong from the Ultimate Spider-Man comic book, are all present and correct, showing Wiseman's ability to pick and choose as he sees fit. Norman Osborn is also present from the beginning, here recast as a ruthless businessman a la the post-crisis DC Comics version of Lex Luthor, and working for him are Adrian Toomes and Otto Octavius. Again, I have mixed feelings about this, as the interconnectedness of everything can become a little tiresome, but in this case it actually deepens Toomes' transformation into comic book villain The Vulture, while still being moderately faithful to the comic's origin, as provided by writer Roger Stern. Character designs and animation are strong from the get-go, as is the voice cast led by Josh Keaton as Peter Spider-Man. The first episode, Survival of the Fittest, is remarkable in how like a comic book it feels. Frenetic and jam-packed, full of character and action, this opening episode moves at a breakneck pace, never slowing down for a moment, yet it manages to devote time to characterization as well as tell a coherent and exciting story. Whilst not an adaptation of a specific comic storyline, it centres on the betrayal of Tombs by Osborne and Tombs becoming the Vulture after Osborne cheats Tombs out of his patents. Taking elements from both Amazing Spider-Man issue 240 and 241 from 1983, the conclusion was Spider-Man pulls out the Vulture's power supply is lifted directly from Amazing Spider-Man issue 2 from 1963. At the same time, Spider-Man has started interfering with a major crime lord's business, and the mystery crime lord hires the Enforcers, first seen in Amazing Spider-Man issue 10 from 1964, to capture him. Alongside these myriad subplots, Peter is bullied at school by Flash, the gang of supporting characters are introduced, and it all feels like the early Ditko stuff, albeit with a touch of Bendis' work on Ultimate Spider-Man for good measure. There's even a subplot about Peter and Gwen being given an internship with Kurt Connors, only for them to find Eddie Brock, the man who will be Venom, also works there. As the storyline unfolds, we'll learn that Eddie and Peter have a backstory together. 
This first episode could have been a colossal mess. There's a lot going on, there's a lot of characters introduced, and a lot of subplots thrown at the wall, including Peter's first meeting with Jonah and Robbie Robertson at the Daily Bugle. There's even throwaway appearances from Flint, Marco and Morris Bench, who will presumably become Sandman and Hydro-Man, respectively. Yet Wiseman keeps everything clear and simple, despite there being a huge amount of plot to set up. He picks up just after Ben Parker's death, with Spider-Man still believed to be a myth. Wiseman also has a remarkable handle on the main character. Whilst Peter's internal monologue, an excellent way of duplicating Stan Lee's voice, has Peter be quite serious, his wisecracking as Spider-Man is often genuinely funny. Spider-Man was Peter's chance to be what he always was deep down, as well as his escape when life got rough, and Wiseman handles it beautifully. Norman is given a lot of screen time as well, setting him up as being similar in character to the Sam Raimi movies in his business dealings and his relationship with his son Harry, the dynamic being similar to the show, with Peter and Harry being friends because Peter tutors Harry. Gwen is given short shrift in the episode, and Aunt May is only painted in broad strokes, but with only 21 minutes to set the show up, introduce the large cast, and tell a coherent story whilst setting up subplots for the future, this is actually masterful storytelling. Although introducing Eddie Brock so soon, and as friends of Peter and Gwen, is stretching it a bit. Wiseman has built up a lot of goodwill in this first instalment, though, so I'm willing to let it slide, as on the whole, this was a magnificent debut. By contrast, the second episode, Interactions, is more straightforward. Ostensibly the origin and introduction of Electro, this segment concentrates on telling that story rather than having multiple narrative strands, although it has a few subplots concerning Kurt Connors and his experiment to grow a new limb. Peter is also asked to tutor Liz Allen, and the Bugle offers a reward for pictures of Spider-Man. It follows the template of the first show, in that Max Dillon knows Kurt, and by extension Peter, and whilst I can appreciate that this speeds up the narrative, it becomes unnecessarily convenient that everybody who is going to get superpowers already knows Peter. This is only a loose adaptation of Amazing Spider-Man 10. Max gets his powers in a lab accident, making him the same as any number of other Spider-Man villains, and as this was Kurt Connors' lab, Max blames him for the accident. Again, giving a villain a motivation isn't a bad thing, but this kind of just turns Electro into a carbon copy of another villain, the Scorpion. And maybe, just maybe, having Electro be a normal guy who sees the powers as a ticket to Easy Street would have been preferable. Stan and Steve largely knew what they were doing with the Spider-Man strip, and following their lead just once would have been a nice change of pace. Still, the animation is lovely, capturing Spidey's fluidity of movement and speed very, very well, and the Peter Tutor's Liz subplot is sensitively handled. The ending, where, after seeing there's more to Peter than she suspected, Liz still disses puny Parker in front of her friends so as not to lose her standing as a cool kid, is perfect. There's also a great running gag about Spider-Man having to call Aunt May every five minutes as well after breaking his curfew, and the episode is breezy and entertaining while still conjuring up the feel of the comic books. Natural Selection brings to a head the Kurt Connors subplot that has been bubbling away in the background since the first show. As in the comics, Connors has been using reptilian DNA and injecting it to try and regrow his lost arm. And also, as in the comics, the reptilian part of the brain has come to the fore and rendered Connors a bipedal lizard creature. More faithful to the spirit of the original comic story from Amazing Spider-Man issue 6 than the actual letter, this actually manages to capture the hard-luck hero of the original strip. From Peter being forced to take a balloon water bath from Flash Thompson to protect his secret identity, to having to run off to change to Spider-Man instead of helping find a cure, resulting in everybody thinking he's a coward, to the conclusion where his photos of Spider-Man and the Lizard end up on the front page, but at the cost of betraying the Connors, this episode manages to capture the dichotomy of being Spider-Man, the fun and excitement, yet the responsibility that goes with it far better than any of the live-action movies. Peter has been trying to get pictures of Spider-Man to sell to make money for three episodes now, and has been thwarted at every turn. Upon getting decent shots, he doesn't hesitate to sell them. He's careful not to use pictures that reveal who the lizard was, but the sense of disappointment from Eddie Brock and the betrayal from Gwen Stacy is nicely handled. The audience is forced to ask what they would have done in Peter's shoes, and whilst the ending is rushed, it's a typical Spider-Man moment, one of many that sold the character to the readership of the 1960s. 
Despite having a title that makes it sound like a boring documentary about Wall Street, the next episode, Market Forces, has the series hit its stride, with a segment that deftly juggles comedy, action, character and drama. It takes every opportunity to dump on Peter, sometimes literally as when Spider-Man gets trapped in a trash compactor, and Peter spends the rest of the episode stinking of garbage. Building on the subplots of the big man and his crime wave run by Hammerhead and the Enforcers, this episode introduces The Shocker in this incarnation Enforcer member Montana, rather than the more comics-correct Herman Schultz. See, the big man has decided that if Spider-Man is kept busy dealing with colourful adversaries, he keeps his nose out of the real business, and the Shocker is but the first in a line of super-powered villains created by Norman Osborn. There's a couple of deviations from canon in terms of naming characters. Robbie Robertson's son, Randy, loses a Y off his name to become Rand Robertson, and Ned Leeds becomes Ned Lee. No relation to Jim, I assume. But this episode really comes together in its plotting and scripting. Peter finally lands a job at the Daily Bugle, and Jonah, played by Veronica Mars alum Darren Norris, is hysterically funny. Peter meets and hits on Betty Brandt and constantly jilts study date Harry Osborne, leading him to be on the outs with both of his friends, Gwen still not speaking to him following the events of the last episode. Peter does manage to make some money in this one, Jonah happily buying his pictures, and we get our first mention of Murray Jane Watson in a subplot that, like the comics, has Aunt May trying to set Peter up on a blind date. A pretty damn good show in every respect, this episode gives us a series that has hit the ground running and has now built up to a decent sprint. The next episode, sadly, is a bit of a retrograde step. Firstly, it highlights the show's propensity for boring episode titles. Competition isn't exactly up, though, with the man in the Crime Master's mask or Bring Back My Goblin to Me. Secondly, there's more of the setting up of characters from the future that I didn't like. Having Hobie Brown, who will go on to be the Prowler in Amazing Spider-Man 278, and Glory Grant, who will be Peter's neighbour from Amazing Spider-Man 140 onwards, be high school classmates, not only adds further layers of coincidence to the story, it also makes New York look like a really small place. This episode has Harry and Peter try out for the school football team and do quite well, although Peter ultimately blows his chances to allow his friend his moment in the sun. Harry repays Peter and Gwen by snubbing them now that he's part of the in-crowd. The action is provided by Sandman here, yet another creation of Norman Osborn, although Otto Octavius does the actual genetic manipulation. It's better than French nuclear testing, I suppose. Unlike the last episode, the Sandman stuff is completely independent from the high school plot, which happened a lot in the comics, and emphasised Peter's life away from school, and it works well. Giving Harry a motivation behind being a jerk, as he was when we first met him in Amazing Spider-Man issue 31, also worked very well. The problem with Harry is that he works as a snotty rich kid who people only like because his father has influence and power, as he was depicted in the comics. The movies took the approach of poor little rich boy, but this was negated by casting James Franco, who really doesn't look like he'd be struggling for female companionship. The series manages to walk a pretty good tightrope between the two having Harry be a bigger outcast than Peter, because at least Peter is smart. This Harry doesn't even have the excuse that Norman ignores him from being a widower, as, for no reason I can see unless it's going to be important later, Harry's mother is still alive. The recasting of Gwen as a nerdy science kid doesn't really work for me either. I've been given benefits of the doubt to it to see if it was leading anywhere, but I have to confess I much prefer the arc as presented in the comics, that of Gwen being a really smart girl, she was a science major after all, who is Miss Popular because of her looks, who slowly comes around to Peter when she starts to realise that looks and popularity aren't the be-all and end-all of life. It gives her a depth that isn't present if she's a nerdy kid from the beginning. Competition isn't a bad episode by any means. There's a scene in the middle of Peter daydreaming of running rings around the football team, dressed as Spider-Man and wearing an American football helmet, that is genuinely funny. And this scene also seems to have been the setup for the ultimate Spider-Man show that would follow this. I do think that some of the choices make the world seem a little more insular, however. The Invisible Hand steps back up to the penalty spot to put it in the back of the net. Once again, there's a lot going on. It's Peter's spring formal, he's still working at the Bugle, Norman Osborn has invented another new bad guy, the Rhino, and there are still bubbling subplots such as what will Murray Jane be like and who is the big man? But this episode juggles all these plots deftly. 
as with the sound the rhino is a two-bit thief who we've seen getting his head handed to him in previous episodes so he already has a grudge against spider-man and the rhino spider-man battle is well animated and very funny spider-man beats him using his brains as well which is always nice the episode scores on a more subtle level though the Rhino, here with the name Alex O'Hearn rather than Alexei Sistovich of his original appearance back in Amazing Spider-Man issue 41, is famously dim, and that characteristic is at least carried over. Although, to be fair, he is smart enough to track Spider-Man down through Peter Parker, thanks to his pictures in the Bugle. When the Rhino arrives at the Bugle looking for Parker, Jonah lies to keep Peter safe and even warns Peter off, who has just arrived via the Webberline Express, to prevent his Aunt May from meeting Betty Brandt, who Peter has asked out to the Spring Formal, despite the four-year age difference. This was a nice nod to the comics where Betty Brandt was Peter's first girlfriend, although, thanks to later stories by Kurt Busiek in Untold Tales, there wasn't that much of an age difference between them. Betty started working for Jonah in her last year of high school. Aunt May, it has to be said, is a sly old fox here. Confronting Betty and basically telling her she's too old for Peter simply because she wants him to date Mary Jane. There's some great high school hijinks when Flash Thompson, who refuses to believe Peter even has a girlfriend, bets Peter that if he shows up stag, he's going to the Halloween party in a tutu. Spider-Man, thanks to the Rhino, finally learns a name for the big man, Lincoln, and the cartoon throws long-time fans a bone by having Peter ask Bugle reporter Fred Foswell if he knows the name. Foswell would be revealed to be the big man in Amazing Spider-Man issue 10. Here, though, it's revealed to be Tombstone from the spectacular Spider-Man comics of the 1980s, and Spider-Man finally meets a villain he can't fight with his fists. I was expecting him to be the kingpin, so this was quite a nice surprise. Another nice touch in this scene. When Spider-Man smashes a window with a chur to escape the police, he is, after all, trespassing in Tombstone's offices, he webs it back into the room rather than allowing it to fall to the floor and possibly hurt somebody. Of course, the main scene here is the finale, which reenacts one of the most famous scenes in Spider-Man comics history. Mary Jane's entrance and famous first line, Face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. From Amazing Spider-Man issue 42. Here, Mary Jane is set up as Peter's date for the formal, and Vanessa Marshall's delivery of the line urinates all over the insipid performance of Kirsten Dunst in the movies. All told, this is a pretty great episode, changing the dynamic of the show and stepping up a number of plot points. Catalysts is a game-changer in many ways. It gives us our first proper look at Mary Jane, who is depicted as just being one of those people that is effortlessly cool, and the reactions of Peter's high school cohort to her entrance is ripped straight from the pages of the early comic books. This episode also introduces us to John Jameson and the Green Goblin, although the latter is probably more of interest to long-time comics fans. The Green Goblin is a hard character to take seriously. Even in the comics, his shtick was basically to be a crime lord and run the New York mobs. In his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man issue 14, Stan Lee basically apologises for how he looks. To make him a contender, Stan had to graft on a personal connection to Peter Parker. Later comics events would mark him as one of Spider-Man's greatest, if not THE greatest adversary, but this isn't borne out in the early comics themselves. In this episode, the Goblin is merely another in a long line of costumed bad guys for Spider-Man to fight. Nothing really remarkable about him. He has a nice line in sarcastic humour, but his redesign for the cartoon more closely resembles the frankly quite silly look given to him in the late 90s, early 2000s comics reboot. The Goblin always looked goofy, but Ditko had a flair for the bizarre that made it work. John Romita, who followed Ditko on the comic series, actually made it look functional, so it takes real talent to make that costume look even dumber under the pretext of improving it. Still, the character work and subplots are excellent. Pete has to flee the fall formal to go take photos, leaving MJ alone at the dance. This leads to a great and quite adult gag, when MJ puts Liz Allen in her place by dancing with Rand Robinson, who she calls Randy, getting his name wrong. Rand answers, always. Gwen is only here in passing, having no scenes with Peter at all, and being ignored by Harry in favour of his new clique. Harry, who has made himself part of the in-crowd by just throwing money at his new friends, is seriously annoyed at being upstaged by Peter, something that has been a running plot throughout the show. He's been using the Gobulin Green to enhance his performance on the football field, but the final straw for Harry is when his date, Glory Grant, goes back to her original boyfriend and he snaps, ingesting even more of Oscorp's formula, labelled here Gobulin Green. 
The writers are leading the viewer to believe that Harry is the Green Goblin, a big departure from the canon if true, although I suspect it's probably going to be a fake-out. Large dollops of irony, always an integral addition to the Spider-Man story mix, are added when Spider-Man has to save Tombstone from the Goblin, essentially doing for free what Tombstone offered to pay him in the last episode. Ned Lee offers to follow the Spider-Man story to uncover who he is, but Jonah doesn't care who's under the mask. And nobody doesn't sell papers, but Spider-Man, he sells papers. Robbie, however, orders Lee to continue his investigations. This scene and numerous other character bits throughout make this episode a winner. This show has been consistently a joy to watch and has genuinely made me laugh at least once per episode, and this doesn't let the side down. The Goblin is a bit too much like the Joker, the setup with Oscorp, a little too much like the post-crisis Superman, but the high school milieu is well explored, the characters well developed, and there's a feeling of honouring the original comics that permeates every frame. After nine episodes of teasing Otto Octavius, reaction finally gives us a Doctor Octopus, but kind of botches it. Otto's character has been altered from the comics in that he's Osborne's toady in this series, but here the origin is altered in that the Green Goblin sabotages one of Otto's experiments, causing a meltdown that fuses Octavius's tentacled apparatus to his spine and apparently sends him over the edge. As of this point, he's the Doctor Octopus we all know and love from the original comic strips, all egocentric bluster and hubris, and he takes to having his revenge on Osborne in a manner similar to the Vulture in episode 1. Unlike Amazing Spider-Man issue 3, the good Doctor's first appearance, Ock isn't handled as a mirror image of Peter himself, rather just another experiment gone wrong, and it's not as satisfying as the comics, nor is this being yet another Osborne creation, which by this point is bordering on cliché. Happily, the series manages to amp up the humour and drama, although the subplots take a back seat. Whilst we still see Hammerhead, who, it dawns on me, hasn't actually done anything interesting yet, it's mostly high school shenanigans that take the centre stage. Mary Jane has ingratiated herself into the Midtown High clique and is at Coney Island with Flash Thompson. Liz Allen has took to dating Peter to get her own back, but when Dr. Octopus ends up at Coney Island also, Peter's personal and professional life clash for the first time. See, in this retelling, Ox Arms operated on a power cell, and if this cell isn't charged up or replaced occasionally, he powers down. Spider-Man must therefore get Ox's power to run dry whilst preventing Ox from killing his friends. Having Ox have such an obvious Achilles heel also makes him too similar to the Vulture. Ox's arms in the comics are mentally controlled, a literal extension of his own body, so having them be operated by an independent power supply seems a tad redundant. Ock does become more arrogant and verbose after the accident, a, a comics trait, and having him threaten Liz Allen as opposed to Gwen or Murray Jane was different, but I can't help but feel, for the first time, the series dropped the ball on a villain's character or motivation. Whilst they have made alterations, these have been in service of the story or the overall series story arc, whereas Ock's alterations take away any uniqueness he may have had and make him no more personal a threat than the Scorpion. Still, we finally see John Jameson launch into space, presumably setting up a future episode, and Gwen finally notices something's wrong with Harry, a side effect of the Goblin formula he's been taking. Harry is rapidly losing our sympathies. He literally jumps over a prone Gwen to save his own skin from Ock, and he's actively ignoring both Peter and Gwen now. Again, this isn't a bad episode. I don't think this series has had a bad episode. The opening, where Spider-Man stops a couple of carjackers, is genuinely amusing, and the writers are still packing an awful lot of material into 20 minutes, but as Doctor Octopus is one of my favourite bad guys, and I think Spider-Man's main arch-foe, this felt like a missed opportunity. The Uncertainty Principle is the next instalment and sees the series back on track. Set against the backdrop of Halloween, the Green Goblin kidnaps Hammerhead and blackmails Tombstone into coming to get him with the threat of a flash drive which details every illegal transaction Hammerhead has been a party to. He also lures Spider-Man in. Of course, it's both a lie and a trap, and our hero goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Goblin, a fight that reveals Harry Osborn to be the man behind the Emerald Mask. There are some great layers to this story, from the subtle handling of Harry's drug addiction from the comics here, he's addicted to the performance enhancer Goblin Green, to the interweaving of the large cast of characters, and the establishing of Murray Jane as a regular as she transfers to Midtown High. 
Great humour is derived from Peter attending the Halloween party as Spider-Man, and Flash honours his bet, attending as a cheerleader. There's even a cameo from the Black Cat. The B-plot this time centres around John Jameson's space shuttle trip, although, unlike Amazing Spider-Man number one, he doesn't need Spider-Man to save him. The writers do a great job with this story, carefully exploiting the agony Jonah feels as he learns his son may not survive, to his anger that the Daily Globe, with its Spider-Man vs. the Goblin story, outsold the Bugle's celebration of John's heroic act. A sublime way of having Jonah come to hate Spider-Man, especially as Jonah rejected Peter's pictures, forcing him to go to the competition. John also brings back a strange black goo on the nose of his shuttle, no doubt setting up Venom for later on. It's all astonishingly well written, and this segment leaves us with a few lingering mysteries, and the feeling that there's more going on with the Green Goblin than we may think. Norman convinces Spider-Man to not mention Harry's problems when Spidey returns Harry home, and the end, where Gwen and Peter ponder Harry's fate as he is forced to take a leave of absence from school, evokes the old comics where we, the reader, weren't entirely sure if Spider-Man had won. Carefully balancing action drama, character noir and soap opera, this series keeps its eye on the ball as it heads into its last few episodes. A sidestep is taken in Persona, which manages to juggle a metric ton of new plots, as well as adding to the already bubbling subplots. There's a ton of new characters introduced in this episode, with a larger than normal role for Captain George Stacy, who has only been seen sporadically so far, plus a proper appearance by the Black Cat, the first appearance of the Chameleon, Quentin Beck, the man who will become Mysterio, and even Stan Carter, who will be the Sin Eater in the comics, plus an appearance by Gene DeWolfe, who the Sin Eater will brutally murder. I wonder if they'll do that story on this year. The Green Goblin big man plot takes a back seat as the black goo that landed on Earth ends up at Kirk Connor's labs, and Spider-Man takes an interest, bumping into the black cat who is out for the goo herself. Featuring a spectacularly adult gag, where the black cat says, don't get your goo in my hair, this episode is all about the weird sexual chemistry between Spider-Man and black cat, seductively voiced by Battlestar Galactica's Trisha Helfer. As with Amazing Spider-Man 194, where the cat made her debut, she's an amazingly agile cat burglar, who's not afraid to use her slinky sexuality to confuse our hero, and it's to the credit of the show's staff that they pull this off in a kid's cartoon. The chameleon starts robbing banks dressed as Spider-Man, as he did in his first appearance as Amazing Spider-Man number one, and there's a lovely nod to a later retcon, in which Quentin Beck is one of his henchmen. Spider-Man, on the other hand, is none too pleased. He's on the outs with the Connors, Gwen and Eddie again for taking photos of the lab and selling them, and when the goo attaches itself to his costume he starts noticing that his power levels have increased. I can't help but wonder whether Avi Arad had something to do with the costume's early appearance in the show, given his apparent hard-on for the Venom character. Then we take a left turn to adapt Man of Steel issue 4, which isn't even a Spider-Man comic. When the Black Cat and Spider-Man, now clad in black, stop the Chameleon from robbing the Murs party on a cruise liner, complete with a cameo for the White Tiger's amulet, the action becomes a Miami Vice-style boat chase around New York's harbours. Despite all of this weird juxtaposition, it actually all holds together. The story is fast-paced and witty, although I do miss the high school hijinks which take a back seat in this episode. Speaking to that, Mary Jane has replaced Harry in the opening credits, which is odd as she doesn't even appear in the episode. There's a nod to the Raimi movies when the cat kisses Spider-Man upside down, turning his mask up to his nose, and the cat's design is slinky rather than outwardly sexy, but Helfer manages to make her a vivacious individual with her excellent voice performance. Not one of the best episodes, putting the stories we've become invested in on the back burner, but it does set up the last few episodes quite nicely. Group Therapy continues the upward trajectory of the series' quality, with an adaptation of one of my all-time favourite Spider-Man stories, the Sinister Six from Amazing Spider-Man Annual No. 1. The basic plot sees Hammerhead and the Big Man bust Dr. Octopus, the Shocker, the Vulture, Sandman and the Rhino out of prison with the aid of Electro, who has managed to convince Dr. Kafka that he is quite sane. They go about getting their revenge on the wall crawler in a spectacular Times Square battle that puts every live-action version of this character to shame. 
That's the basic plot, but following the continuity of the series, this can't simply be an adaptation of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, although the writers do acknowledge it in subtle ways, such as May Parker standing up to Dr. Octopus in Times Square and his becoming intrigued by her. She's a lot younger in this series, I feel I need to point that out. What this story does, though, and does it magnificently, is take the myriad different plot lines of the comics and blends them together perfectly in a taut and remarkable 20 minutes. In addition to the Sinister Six, the cartoon follows the comics version of the black costume story by having it leech off Peter's life energy, leaving him lethargic all of the time. They then mix this in with the 90s cartoon version of the story, with the alien costume altering Peter's personality, something that would be done to lesser effect in Spider-Man 3. This perfect synergy of these two plots works magnificently when we realise that Peter slept through the entire final battle with the Six, which was why he wasn't making his usual wisecracks. Eddie Brock starts coming to the fore, dating Murray Jane to get back at Peter for Pete's perceived using of him and the Connors to make money. MJ quickly realises that Eddie is a massive cock, a change in character that comes a little from nowhere for a series with such consistently good writing as this one, but it's getting us where we need to go. Eddie also wears a black and white jacket, the pattern on which foreshadows his upcoming fate. His and Peter's origins and backstory are more along the lines of the Ultimate series, but thankfully this adaptation of The Sinister Six is nowhere near as boring as Bendis' version was in the Ultimate Spider-Man comics run. There are no high school hijinks this week, but Aunt May has a heart attack that is really sensitively handled. This Aunt May has been quite a joy, despite junking Peter's relationship with Betty, before it can even happen. And against all odds, the writers make us cur when this happens. They twist the screws in true Parker fashion, when Peter, due to his constant sleeping, doesn't even know May is in the hospital, although Jonah's sensitive reaction is beautifully played. Whilst J.K. Simmons is undeniably a great live-action Jonah, it's this series that's nailed his personality and his dislike of Spider-Man the best. There's a name check for another comics character, Dr. Ashley Kafka, and the episode takes the myriad plot strands from Amazing Spider-Man number 1, Amazing Spider-Man issue 17, issue 252, issue 258, and Ultimate Spider-Man issue 33, plus the various plot threads from this series, and weaves them together magnificently. A superlative episode in what has been so far a superlative series. Intervention picks up the plot regarding the alien costume and is a pretty good adaptation of Web of Spider-Man number one. Peter, hit by crippling medical bills, goes full on dark side, embracing the costume's nihilistic viewpoint, and goes to Tombstone asking for a job after alienating himself from his high school peers, all of which are slowly starting to have a measure of sympathy for what Peter is going through. When, of all people, Flash Thompson helps Peter see the light, he turns on the costume in an internal psychological battle of wills where he is helped out by the spirit of Ben Parker. Despite cocking up the origin by following the Sam Raimi movie, he's a fucking burglar, people! How hard is that to understand? This is a creepy and engrossing instalment, boasting excellent use of colour and grayscale to represent the battle Peter is undergoing. There's even a magnificent visual nod to the cover of Amazing Spider-Man issue 100. As Peter fights his greatest battle, one for his very soul, the animators go to town, utilising the costume's tentacles and morphing to eerie effect. Ultimately, Peter's mental battlefield conjures up Ben Parker, who helps Peter see the good he's done and that he is not alone. Despite my origin quibbles, this does a pretty good job of bringing Amazing Fantasy issue 15 to the screen. So good of a job were they doing, I audibly moaned when they cocked it up and went with the movie version. Ignoring that, this is an instalment that works creatively, but still has a few problems. Peter just stumbling on the notion that Sonics can harm the costume rather than figuring it out, as happened in the comics, is one such problem. Granted, Amazing Spider-Man issue 258, where all this was resolved, had the benefits of using Reed Richards and his lab to help out, something prevented here due to rights issues. I originally thought that in lieu of Reed, the series would have had Kurt Connors be the scientist that helped Spider-Man, which would have tied Eddie Brock into the story more naturally, but for some reason the writers decided to not go down that path. Also, for some reason, the writers changed the name of the promoter of the wrestling match who stiffs Peter of his money, from Maxwell Schiffman to Sullivan Edwards. I can only assume this was done to lessen confusion as they already have a character called Maxwell in Electra. 
Ed Asner turns in a great turn as Uncle Ben, and the episode sets up Eddie's anger towards Peter better when, after melding with the alien, he learns that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are one and the same. Eddie's subplot is actually quite interesting this time out. He's fired from his job at Connor's lab when the alien costume is missing due to funding cuts, something he blames on Peter. He later sees Spider-Man bring the alien back and is overjoyed, but when Spider-Man wants to kill the alien, a drastic solution for the character really, he allows it to envelop him. Spider-Man being willing to kill is just glossed over, and the first appearance of Venom is botched by having that ridiculous looking tongue flapping all over the place like a flaccid penis. Really, people, Venom was much better in Amazing Spider-Man 300 when he didn't have that. The toothy grin was far more ominous looking than that stupid tongue. I keep thinking he's going to launch into a spirited version of God Gave Rock and Roll to you. All that said, this is, for most of its runtime, a magnificently creepy and thought-provoking episode, although I am left wondering how they're going to wrap up this series in but 20 short minutes. The answer is, they don't. Nature vs. Nurture, the season finale, wraps up the series in pretty fine style, even if it leaves a number of plot threads dangling for future seasons. Eddie Brock embraces the Venom entity and moves in after Peter, who is still trying to adjust to his Aunt May's recent heart attack. Getting nowhere with attacking May, Venom instead targets Gwen Stacy at the Macy's Day Parade. A more action-orientated instalment of a series that hasn't skimped on the action, this basically follows Spider-Man's attempts to stop Venom, who has a far more personal motivation to attack him here than in the comics. Demonstrating what this series has done best, i.e. take elements of the comics and weave them into a coherent and compelling narrative, the show has at no point done a direct adaptation of a specific comic story. Instead, it's taken each disparate element and made it a part of the whole fabric of Peter Parker's life. Sometimes it's done this more successfully than others, but they've always had a good idea of where they were going. Whilst I do prefer the comics version where Peter leaves high school and essentially gets a completely new supporting cast, as I did in my own life, if you were going to bring Gwen, Harry and Murray Jane in early on, this was a pretty decent way of doing it. There's some excellent character bits in this episode, including the clique abandoning their post at the school balloon to help Gwen when she's targeted by Venom, and the Stacys rallying around Aunt May when she comes home from hospital. Some elements are tied up too conveniently, such as May having a cookery book advance that takes care of her medical bills, and I did wonder where Anna Watson and Murray Jane were at the Thanksgiving dinner, but all told this was a good wrap-up. Enough plot elements were left dangling for the writers to pick up in the future. Norman Osborn was conspicuous in his absence, and Tombstone is still running the crime in New York, which begged the question where the kingpin was, but all told, this worked exceptionally well as a series ender. This cartoon series was a pleasant surprise. In time, this could have been to Spider-Man what the 90s Paul Dini Bruce Tim series was to Batman, but even if taken as just these 13 episodes, it's the best Spider-Man has ever been adapted to the screen. Sadly, the second season does not seem to have been released on DVD here, so I may have to check out iTunes to see if they're available so that I can watch how it all unfolded over the next 13 episodes. you very much enjoyed that look at the spectacular spider-man tv series uh, a couple of emails before we wrap up this show andrew morton emailed in with odd treks hi and uh, very much enjoyed your look at odd numbered star trek films well thank you very much that's uh that's very, i'm glad you enjoyed it i had a blast doing that with uh, with sean and paul Andrew re-evaluated his thoughts so quickly. The motion picture, everything you said here is exactly what I'd always thought. It came across as a pilot where subsequent episodes are retooled to suit a different tone. The closest thing that gives me a similar feeling is Firefly, where the pilot comes across as a more thoughtful and character-driven piece compared to the series' more action-comedy feel. Not that it was purely one way for the pilot and the other for the series, but it seems those elements were played up more, which is a very good point that Andrew makes, though. I think it's no secret that Fox interfered with the development of Firefly quite a lot. The Search for Spock, not one I saw much of, but again I agree it feels more like a sequel to Wrath of Khan than The Voyage Home does. Also one of the films that feels more like an episode shot for the big screen than a made-for-purpose film. 
The Final Frontier. I really like this one. I know it's simplistic. I know it has plot holes. You can drive Optimus Prime through, and I don't care. I suspect, for me, it is chalked up to my being nine years old whilst first watching it, and so a lot of the comedy worked perfectly for me, including knowing the ship like the back of my hand, which is an indictment of it, actually, but again, I don't care. Not a lot for the rest of the crew to do, but be brainwashed, but all the scenes with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy just work. I especially like the talk through the pain scene, mostly because McCoy would have gone with Cybok, but his friendship with the others brought him to his senses. And what does God need with a starship? Generations, I was 12 watching this at the cinema, so again, I think I was a good age with which to engage with it, but be able to look over the prime-sized plot holes that are clearly visible now. I really would like to see the version where Kirk takes over command of the Enterprise D, then goes out doing what he always does, saving the ship, which would have been a nice parallel with the start of the movie. Insurrection, I cannot stand insurrection. However, I'm sure that this again has a bit to do with the age I was when I saw it. I was 16, hating my last high school year, and had recently turned into the sarcastic, cynical pessimist that has persisted through to this day. The fact that it feels like a TV episode is not a criticism. It is the fact that it feels like a piss-poor TV episode that's the problem. I am aware that this also applies to five. It just doesn't annoy me as much as it does here. The plot holes are wide enough to pilot a sovereign-class starship through. The mysticism is misplaced. Not that I am against mysticism in Trek, it just didn't work here. And it's another film that is Picard-focused. I see your points, but unlike the others, you haven't made me want to rewatch it. Thank you, Andrew Martin. Well, thank you for emailing in, Andrew. It's, uh, I'm glad that you, re- you uh, reappraised some of them, if not all. The only other email I received about odd tracks was from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andrew and Paul Anshaw. I thoroughly enjoyed your look or defence of the odd-numbered Trek films. I found your argument to and for engaging, and my head was nodding quite a bit throughout each episode. Because you didn't ask, here's my elevator or turbo-lift view of each of the odd-numbered films covered. Star Trek The Motion Picture. I recently rewatched TMP due to Gene Hendricks and Scott Gardner's plea that fans take another look at it. Whilst I found it enjoyable, I must say that while it is a spectacular and visually stunning sci-fi opus, it's not much of a Trek film. What makes Trek for me is that character dynamic, particularly between the big three, and that's not here, despite Kelly stealing the show in several parts. Still a lovely piece of filmmaking. My son Andrew, who has now seen all the classic Trek films, likes this one the least because, as he puts it, it's boring. Do with that what you will. Star Trek 3, The Search for Spark. I have a lot of nostalgia for this one. It's the first Trek film I saw in the theatre. My dad got me into Trek, and although he missed The Wrath of Khan, we went to see this one. I still recall him quietly uttering damn when the Enterprise blew up. It's a very tight film with no flab and some great acting from all involved, including Kelly, Lloyd, and Shatner. His reaction to David's death may be the best acting he's ever done. I always say Treks 2 and 6 are tied for my favourites, but 3 may be just slightly under 2 and right above 6 if I were to rewatch those 3 back-to-back. I should do that. I think Andrew likes this one best. Again, do without what you will. Um, I actually think some of Shatner's best acting was in Boston Legal, but there was a certain element of meta commentary to that performance that, you know, you know, maybe. And in terms of Star Trek, I think his performance in Shore Leave is still a high watermark. I think he's brilliant in that episode. Chris continues, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I've long defended this one for the character bits. I love the campfire scene, again, because the characters interacting is my favourite part of Trek. Other parts of it are sloppy and downright embarrassing. Michelle Nichols is still a lovely woman in her 80s, but come on. I agree it had lofty goals that it missed, but I don't think this would have been a classic even with a better budget and no writer's strike. Star Trek Generations. I really liked this one when it came out, but in later years grew to dislike it because Kirk is so grossly out of character once he gets to the Nexus. I agree, having him in Paradise with Edith Keeler, Carol Marcus, or Mira Marnie, hell, even Ruth from Shoreleave, would have sold Kirk's portrayal far better, but he still acts like an effete boob throughout many of these scenes. Andy, your suggestion that Kirk go down on the bridge of Enterprise D had me slapping my forehead. What a great ending that would have been for Kirk to go down with his ship, or a version of it anyway. I actually liked his Enterprise B death better than the Soren Wall, although I agree with Paul that the Shat acted his final scene very well. The only thing that makes Scotty and Chekhov's presence on the B work is Kirk's line in Trek 5 about dying alone without Spock and McCoy. All in all, I really think they should have left Kirk's fate a mystery, so the whole thing now seems like a misstep in the grand tapestry of Trek. 
Star Trek Insurrection, I've only seen this one once or twice, so I don't have anything to say about it. I'll be honest, I never completely warmed to the Next Generation crew, so once they were on their own, my interest started to wane. I liked First Contact because Picard finally grew a pair of... Well, you know. I don't recall disliking this one, but it was just kind of meh to me. I've yet to see Nemesis, partially due to my reaction to this one, but mostly due to missing it in theatre, due to becoming a father around this time. Again, a great episode, and I agree none of these are what I deem as bad or unwatchable films. I'd love to hear what you guys think about the even-numbered flicks. All the best, Chris. Well, thank you very much for emailing in, Chris. That was very much appreciated. I do like hearing what other people think of the odd-numbered ones. I kind of think an even-numbered one... You know, I kind of think we'd just follow the, the, the familiar pattern... If we did that, I'm not averse to it, and if Paul and Sean want to get the gang back together to do that, I'd be open to it. But I, I don't really think my opinions of the even-numbered films are, are any different to the general consensus, with the possible exception of First Contact, that I think is incredibly overrated, and, and not as good as everyone says it is. I don't think The Next Generation got a decent film, to be honest. I like Insurrection more than I like First Contact, I like Generations more than I like Nemesis, but I don't think any of them were particularly great. They never had a Wrath of Khan or an Undiscovered Country for the Next Generation crew, and I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame that they never got to to have something of that level of quality to call their own. I mean, Nemesis just tries to be Wrath of Khan again. It's just mimicking what has gone before, because I think, I honestly think by that point, Rick Berman had run out of steam and maybe um, should have passed the torch onto somebody else, but that way led to the J.J. Abrams tracks, didn't it? Which, you know, be careful what you wish for, I suppose is the uh, the moral of this tale. Thank you very much for emailing in. It was very much appreciated. HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com is the email address for this show. Still the HeyKidsComics email address. If you wish to drop me a line about this or any other episodes, if just suggestions, I'm open to suggestions. Uh, I'm still percolating on the idea of doing a Blake 7 episode, Space Above and Beyond episode, an Alien Nation episode, lots of other stuff still to come. It's the ideas for the show to just pop out of nowhere and I can cover whatever I like. So that's where a lot of it comes from. Thank you very much for joining me for this one, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.